The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome back my guest from last week, Dr. Justin Sonnenberg. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. In 2009, he was the recipient of a National Institutes of Health Director's New Innovator Award. He and his wife, Erica, a senior research scientist also at Stanford University School of Medicine, have joined forces to write a terrific book called The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. We spoke last week about how diet influences our gut microorganisms and how those gut microorganisms are really becoming or turning into what I like to call a new frontier in health and medicine. So welcome back, Dr. Sonnenberg. It's great to hear your voice again. Great to be back with you. Last week, we spoke about how the microorganisms in our guts become established you know, starting at birth and then the early experiences in life. And we touched a little bit on diet. One of the things I mentioned that I really liked about your book is that you have applied science and that you've given us recipes along with science to teach us how to eat to preserve the microorganisms in our gut. And I just thought maybe we'd start today with a little personal experience that I had. I recently had a wicked sinus infection, and I went to see my doctor, who was quick to prescribe some antibiotics. And I was a little unsure of that because of the effect on my gut. And she said, well, don't worry, just take some probiotics. And I said, well, which ones? And she said, oh, anything over the counter will do. Long story short, I got a second opinion and learned that really what I had was a viral infection. I did not need the antibiotics. And since probiotics are part of my diet anyway, I certainly didn't need to buy anything over the counter. So tell me what you think about my whole personal scenario. Yeah, well, I think that there's two interesting things that I noticed right off the bat that are important with regard to the microbiota. The first being that physicians are quite often very quick to prescribe antibiotics and often in cases where they're not needed. And a lot of times I think physicians feel pressure from people to prescribe antibiotics. They think that that's what's expected. People, especially in the United States, have come to want a pill when they leave the doctor's office if they're not feeling well. And so I really encourage people, because antibiotics wreak havoc on this really important microbial community that we have in our distal digestive tract, the microbiota, and make us susceptible to foodborne illness, other nasty intestinal pathogens like Clostridium difficile, and long-term effects of what happens to the microbiota aren't really well understood, but it's probably not good, that it's really important to have conversations with doctors just about, you know, is it okay to take a wait-and-see approach and to hold off on antibiotics or to try something else like probiotics if it's warranted. And so, so I think, you know, figuring out ways to avoid antibiotics and only use them when they're absolutely necessary is really a, a wise thing to do. The second part of your story that is interesting and we should talk more about it has to do with 
the use of probiotics. When are they effective? When should people be using them? What types to use? It's really become an overwhelming marketplace to navigate with respect to probiotics. And so there's, it's a challenging area that, that deserves some attention. Mm-hmm, I agree. And my understanding with regard to probiotics is that they are very much species-specific. And what I learned from your book is that because we are all individuals, one person may respond to a probiotic in a positive way, and another might not have any response. So when we are trying to keep the microorganisms in our gut healthy or when we have been prescribed an antibiotic and we really do need to restore any of the microbiota or the microorganisms that live in our gut to keep us healthy, what is the best approach? Do we look for certain species that have been proven to be effective or should we go with food first and pills later? Great question. And so I think a lot of this gets down to whether you are interested in just incorporating probiotics into your diet, not for any particular reason other than that they may give you some health benefit, may be able to help you fight off a cold or something like that in the future. And that's very different than if you're interested in using it for a particular medical scenario, either treating some medical issue that you're having, whether, you know, ranging from constipation to irritable bowel syndrome to, you know, the probiotics are used in NICUs and in neonatal intensive care units to help prevent necrotizing enterocolitis, a really terrible disease that has a high mortality rate for premature infants, and antibiotic-associated diarrhea or just repopulating your gut after you take antibiotics. You know, these very specific scenarios, I think, dictate a different approach than if you just want to incorporate uh, probiotics into your life and into your diet. So I think, first of all, it's important to just, you know, most people have probably heard the term probiotic. Just to define it, it has a fairly stringent definition that was put forth by a working group commissioned by the by the WHO and the FAO. And the formal definition is a live microorganism that when administered in adequate quantities confers a health benefit on the host. So this means that the the microbe actually, that strain has to have been studied in a controlled trial with a group receiving a placebo and then shown to be efficacious in some way, shown to have an effect, a biological effect. And most microbes that are out there and available either in supplement form or those found in foods have not been studied at that level of stringency. And so I think for the purposes of this conversation, it's useful to use probiotic to refer to just microbes that occur in foods or are present as supplements in the health food aisle. And so I think that we can use probiotics in that way, but it's important for people to understand that not all of these strains actually meet the formal definition of probiotic. So having said that, let's go back to this issue of prevention versus treatment of something and food versus buying these in supplement form. Good. So, you know, it's the science is still in its infancy, and there was a lot of pseudoscience that was coupled to probiotics early on, run by companies that had conflicts of interests and a lot of marketing hype. And so it's, it's a field that's emerging from this quagmire that it's been in, and very clear that these probiotic microbes associated with foods do have an impact on our biology and can have a lot of benefits. So that's the first important thing to note. 
and they can influence our biology widely. So they can influence what's going on in our gastrointestinal tract, but they can also influence what's going on with the rest of our body. And this gets back to this concept of our gut is a control center for all of our biology, not just digestion, not just intestinal function, but it's been well documented that people taking fermented dairy product that contains probiotic organisms on a daily basis actually are less likely to get respiratory infections over the course of a cold and flu season. Mm-hmm. That's been documented in multiple studies. And so it's very clear that these probiotic organisms can have a biological impact that's positive. So if you are not trying to treat a specific disease, I really think the approach of trying to acquire these microbes in fermented foods is really the way to go. You get a nice diversity of microbes if you try different foods. And with there not being real definitive evidence over about which microbes are the best and with the likelihood that different microbes are better in different people because of our individualized biology and individualized microbiota, I think just in terms of bed hedging and the knowledge that diversity of microbes is good in your intestine, having a wide variety of fermented foods in your diet is really a good strategy. Mm-hmm. And I just want to let our listeners know that your book has a great section called A Probiotics User's Guide. And we can't get into all of the detail that you provide there, but it certainly was eye-opening to me in understanding individual differences as well as regulation or lack thereof. And you're absolutely right. I mean, go into any supplement section and look up at the probiotic section and just be totally overwhelmed, even if you have a little bit of education. It's very confusing. Now, this leads me to another question, and that has to do with a lot of times children, at least I'm speaking again of myself, I remember when my own children were young, gosh, you know, they went to daycare, they were always some kind of respiratory infection or ear infections going on, and they were prescribed antibiotics. Decades down the road now, I'm learning about, oh my gosh, how detrimental that can be to an infant's gut. So my question to you is, can we indeed restore a healthy microbiome or the healthy microbiota, or is the damage done by these antibiotics, and especially early exposure to antibiotics, long-lasting? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, and I think the studies that have been done to date show that the microbiota, and this has been done in adults, but it's probably a similar story in infants, when an individual takes antibiotics, the gut microbiota goes through a rapid transformation. Feces are lost, the total density of microbes decreases rapidly, and then over a course of weeks to months, there is a gradual restoration, a regrowth of the microbiota. But it appears that it never gets back to its original state. It's always slightly changed somewhat from that course of antibiotics. And the impact that this has long-term on an individual's health has not been well studied, but we do know that a healthy, robust gut microbiota is important to so many facets of our biology, including metabolic function, immune function, dictating interactions between microbes in our central nervous system, that it's almost a sure thing that antibiotic use is having some negative impact on 
multiple systems throughout our body by negatively impacting the gut microbiota. Now, this gets back to the question of can we use probiotics to help restore it? And it's important to note that most strains of bacteria that are present either in probiotic supplements or in fermented foods are not microbes that take up permanent residence in the gastrointestinal tract. These microbes are largely adapted to fermenting dairy products or living in, in different environments. There are a few that are, have been isolated from infant stool, and those might be able to stick around. But by and large, most probiotic bacteria are not able to stay in the gastrointestinal tract. And so I think a good way to think about them is using them as placeholders after antibiotic treatment, a way to give your gut temporary microbial occupation as your normal commensal microbiota regrows. And there's definitely evidence that probiotic use after antibiotics can help mitigate antibiotic-associated diarrhea. I think it's a great way to look at it as a placeholder. Let me just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Justin Sonnenberg. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He recently spoke at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting on the impact of our gut microbiota or the microorganisms that live in our gut on our health. And he and his wife, Erica, a senior research scientist also at Stanford, joined forces and co-wrote a terrific book called The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you back, Dr. Sonnenberg, is because of this one piece of your title, which has to do with your mood and this relationship between the gut and the brain. And I think we've all probably said, you know, I have a gut feeling, but there's actually a lot of truth to that, isn't there? Absolutely. So there's, you know, this emerging area called the brain-gut axis, a, a new area of study where there's been some really recent exciting findings that link the gut microbiota to influencing central nervous system development and function profoundly. And so it suggests that the gut microbiota might be a critical component of our personality, our cognition, and ultimately whether or not we develop certain neurological disorders potentially. So there's still a lot of work to be done in this area. It's right at the beginning, but there's a fundamental connection between our gut and our brain and and the microbes are certainly part of this conversation. And even research on things like you mentioned called psychobiotics, meaning that you could take a probiotic supplement again that was specifically going to target or populate microorganisms in the gut that would improve our mood or mental health status. Yeah, absolutely. So let me go through just some findings very quickly to give the listeners a view of of what's known and what the evidence is. Some of the first evidence was actually using mice as a model host to understand the effect of microbes on central nervous system function. And there's a way of raising mice in a sterile plastic bubble where they have no microbiota. No, They're completely sterile. No microbes are colonizing their gastrointestinal tract. So these mice that are called germ-free or microbiota-free mice were compared to mice that had a full microbiota and just monitored for how they were behaving. And it became very clear that the mice without a microbiota had very different behavior 
somewhat less aware. They had less anxiety-like behavior and basically behaved in a way that would make them less fit if they were out in the environment. They would get less startled by things. They actually had poorer memory recall if they mm. weren't colonized by gut microbes. Mm. Um, so that that was one piece of evidence that the gut microbiota was having an influence over the central nervous system and how animals behave. Another group of researchers took mice that behaved very differently in terms of anxiety, and they monitored this by putting the mice on a platform and looking at how quickly they would step down off that platform as a measure of how confident they were or how nervous they were. And so they noticed that one strain of mice would step down very slowly off this platform. They were very nervous compared to another group that would step down very rapidly. They swapped their microbiotas of these two groups of mice experimentally, and they showed that they could not completely swap their behaviors, but they could make the mice that used to take four minutes to step off of the platform, they could reduce that down to about one minute. And similarly, the mice that used to step down rapidly, they could make them step down more slowly, increase their time to about a minute, just by switching the microbes that were present in the strains of these mice. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then you also talk about, I believe there was some monkey research, where the monkeys who had been stressed had different microbiota or different microorganisms growing in their guts than the monkeys that had not been stressed. So you wonder, what comes first? Are the organisms different to begin with, which lead to different stress responses? Or does having a stress, a stressor in our life, influence the kinds of bacteria that can live in our gut? Yeah, it's a very good question, and this conversation is, without a doubt, two directions. So it's the brain talking to the network of neurons in the gut, changing how the gut is operating, and it's also the microbes communicating with that same network and sending messages to the brain, but also making interesting chemicals that get absorbed into our bloodstream that really are poorly characterized right now and can transit through our circulation, and some of them can cross the blood-brain barrier and make their way into the central nervous system to interact with the brain. So there are multiple modes of communication that are going both ways, and it's really difficult to figure out causation. Probably the best evidence that this actually happens in humans and that there's a causal relationship was it was a study performed by a UCLA group where they fed a group of women probiotic-containing fermented dairy product. And then they had another control group that received a placebo. And I think the treatment went on for three or four weeks of daily consumption of the probiotic or placebo. And then they performed fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging study, to look at their brain activity. And they saw that the group of women that were receiving the probiotic-containing fermented dairy product daily had very different brain activity in the fMRI study when undergoing a facial recognition test compared to the women that were just receiving the placebo. So evidence that probiotics and what's running through your gut can influence how your brain is functioning. And you also talk about children with autism. Certainly there are lots of factors involved in why a child may or may not develop autism, including different chemical exposures of the mom. But I'm curious about one factor that seems to be fairly prevalent among children with this disorder, and that is that they have something called a leaky gut, and they have a lot of GI issues, a lot of pain. 
And your book describes how some probiotics may actually help children not only feel better, but also lose some of those autistic spectrum disorder behaviors. Yeah, right. So the the study that's been performed to date has been done in mice. And so, you know, there's always a question of, of whether the studies that are performed in mice are going to translate to humans. But the study that's been performed, and this gets back to the chicken and egg problem a bit, because the mouse model of autism is actually one in which an immune response is stimulated in the mother as she is pregnant and the pups born to this mother that has been undergoing a, an excessive immune response exhibit uh, social behaviors that are abnormal for a mouse. And so this is a, a mouse model of autism. And so you have this environmental trigger that leads to this immune response that ultimately leads to the problem with the young mouse pups in terms of behavior. But what the researchers recognize, this was done at Caltech, was that these mice that exhibited these autism-like behaviors had a leaky gut and had chemicals that were moving into their bloodstream and affecting the brain that were derived from the gut microbiota. And if they actually added the right bacteria, they could repair that gut, reduce the amount of that chemical circulating in the bloodstream, and help those mice regain uh, normal behavior. And so, you know, this, again, this was done in mice, but it really points to this possibility that the status of your gut and what your microbiota is doing, the relationship between the microbiota and the permeability of the intestine really can be profound factors in how the brain is functioning. Mm -hmm. Speaking of brain function and just overall strong immune health, I think we should also probably talk about the role of our gut microorganisms with regard to aging. And if we're lucky, we're going to be getting older, but there are changes, aren't there, that happen in our guts. And I wonder, how do we keep our microbiota young And what kind of changes occur naturally to that population of organisms just as a function of aging? Yeah, so this is another emerging area that looks like it's going to be really important for our health, particularly as populations age. And it's becoming clear that maintaining diversity or many different types of bacteria in your gut microbiota appears to be a sign of health. It appears to be a problem in Western societies in general that probably due to antibiotic use and a poor quality diet, a diet that's low in dietary fiber, the um, complex carbohydrates that feed the microbiota, that all of this comes together to give us a low diversity microbiota. So even as healthy adults, most of us have a gut microbiota that is not operating at a optimal diversity. But then as we age, this compounds. We actually our microbiota deteriorates even further and we lose diversity as we age. And it's not clear whether this is a product of aging because we know as we age, many things change in our biology, including a process called immunosenescence, this our immune system functioning suboptimally. And there's some people that hypothesize that that's connected to gut microbiota deterioration. But it may be exactly the reverse, that actually it's the deterioration of the gut microbiota that contributes to senescence of the immune system as we age. There's one study that points to the possibility that 
diet and deterioration of quality of diet as we age is a major contributor to diversity loss. And this was a study that looked at humans in different types of care facilities as they age. And they certainly saw a direct relationship between the level of care facility and the decrease in diversity. So the more care somebody was receiving and the more acute their condition was in terms of becoming elderly and less independent, there was a decrease in gut microbiota diversity. But they also performed a very nice part of the study because just that data alone, it's difficult to assess, again, which ways the arrows are pointing, what's the causal relationship here. And so they actually um, studied individuals that entered into facilities. They looked at what happened to their diets soon after living in a new facility and then monitored what happened to their microbiota. And what they saw was that most people, when they move into a facility for the first time, will maintain a high-quality diet for some period of time, and then gradually over time will start to eat the meals that are provided to them, which are generally lower fiber and lower quality than what most people were eating prior to entering, at least in this study. And what they found was that the diversity loss appeared to correlate not with entry into the facility, but appeared to correlate with when the diet became poor. And so that really indicated that diet might be the driver in the diversity loss that happens as we age. And so to combat this, I think just being very conscious of feeding your gut microbes and making sure that because, you know, there are a lot of factors that contribute to less dietary fibers. You know, some people make extreme efforts for this to consume dietary fibers as they get older. But in truth, the high fiber foods are often tough to chew and are difficult to prepare sometimes, they require a lot of chopping or cooking. And so I think as people age, it becomes easy to default to a low fiber diet. And that's very important that people try to resist that trend. Yeah. And I think that you also raise a really good point or reason to make sure that we support dental health and how all of our body systems are connected. I think that the microbiome research is really proving that on a cellular level. Yeah, no, I I think there's no doubt about it. I mean, the gut microbiota is just such an integral part of our biology. I mean, it's this community of hundreds of trillions of microbes, thousands of species, and connected to our biology in ways that we're just beginning to understand. I mentioned before the chemicals that these microbes make and are absorbed into our bloodstream. There's hundreds to thousands of these chemicals. They're small molecules. They look a lot like drugs that we might get from a pharmaceutical company, but these microbes are secreting them constantly, and we have no idea of their chemical identity. We have no idea of how they're influencing our biology. So it's almost like we have this little unsupervised drug factory living in our colon, and it's really important to try to figure out what these compounds are. Are there good ones? Are there bad ones? And how can we optimize that function of the microbiota? Yeah, and even when you mentioned the little drug factories going on, and then the whole area of what kinds of drugs we may be taking on top, you know, antibiotics aside, the other kinds of drugs that we might be taking and how that impacts our overall health. But 
Unfortunately, our time is up, and I want to thank you so much again, Dr. Sonnenberg, for being my guest. This is a terrific book. For our listeners, once again, the title of the book is The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. It is written by Dr. Justin Sonnenberg, who is, again, an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and he has co-authored this book with his wife, Erica, who is a senior research scientist at Stanford as well. In closing, I want to thank you, Dr. Sonnenberg, for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Sonnenberg, for being with us a second time and for sharing your wisdom and insights about what's going on on the insides of us. It was great to be with you, Melinda. Thanks a lot. 